Kip Stewart, and this is podcast number six on connecting the dots. Once again, my name is Skip Stewart, Chief Improvement Officer and Vice President for Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hi, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a uh, practicing general surgeon and chief medical officer here at Baptist Memorial Union County in uh, North Mississippi. And hey, everyone. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. Well, we are very honored today to have Dr. Lisa Yerian, Chief Improvement Officer from Cleveland Clinic with us to talk. Uh, Dr. Yerian, if you would tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at Cleveland Clinic. Uh, thanks, Skip. And just first off, I just wanted to say thank you so much for inviting me today. It's really uh, been a pleasure getting to know you and your organization a bit better. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, my name is Lucy Arian. I am a practicing surgical pathologist and the chief improvement officer at the Cleveland Clinic. I've been here. I came here straight out of fellowship uh, 16 years ago and about 10 years ago um, became the first physician leader for what was then called continuous improvement, just the continuous improvement team. Um, the team had been brought in and uh, there's a sense that at the Cleveland Clinic, because we are a clinician-led organization, that in programs like this, work like this, is going to be led by a physician. And so Mark Harrison was the physician leader over that group at the time. Um, he now is the CEO at Intermountain. Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the fantastic work they're, they're doing and have done. Um, Mark allowed me to have the role of the medical director for continuous improvement, and that role is grown tremendously. My work, our program has grown tremendously during that time. And then uh, about a year ago, we created the role and title of Chief Improvement Officer, and I'm in that role now. Well, I know that I know that Dr. Mason has some uh, questions and Dr. Lancaster, but be before I unleash them with all their questions, kind of give us a high level. How does Cleveland Clinic think about improvement? How do they get physicians involved? How do, how does, how does, Cleveland Clinic is such a big operation. How do y'all think about uh, continuous improvement? Yeah, I think I would say that the way that we think about continuous improvement has really evolved over time. Uh, when I first started in this role, I would say there was um, really a sense that we already had a culture of excellence. We were performing very well by many measures, right? Financially and by our scores and by national rankings. There were a lot of signs of success and I think, um, you know, process improvement seemed more foreign and didn't necessarily seem like something that we had to do or compelled to do. We didn't have a burning platform, right? We had a crisis like some organizations did. Um, we've grown a lot since that time. I think we and, and many other organizations have seen uh, both real challenges within our organization, but, both, but across the healthcare industry, there's tremendous opportunity for improvement. So you could be ranking well in the national metric or in a national ranking, but we're still, as, as an industry, not doing nearly well enough. And so we really put forth in 2013, when we started to do our cultural culture of improvement, which really our shift to the more transformational work effort, you know, the case for change that said, we know that we are not doing nearly well enough. So even if you are scoring well, or your statistics are relatively good, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity that doesn't even get captured in, in statistics and rankings. And I, I'm guessing all of us see it, right? We see days in patients and uh, where it goes really well and we feel like, oh yeah, that was awesome. That's, you know, that's exactly where I want to be. That's exactly the kind of care I want to give, kind of way I want to do it. But even in a really good place, you seeing times and 
situations that really make you want to beat your head against the wall, right? And I think anybody who spends time in medicine for, you know, a day is going to see those things and and they and they you know they, they kill you right they they burn they they make you want to do better and so what has the transition that's um, occurred is really a shift from you know we don't really need this we don't understand why it's relevant or how it helps us to it's critically relevant because we believe that we want to that, that it's a way for us to deliver the best healthcare in the world we, our vision is to be the best place to receive care anywhere and the best place to work in healthcare. We see those two as complementary and mutually reinforcing, and CI is a way to do both at the same time. So I think that the physicians um, are already heavily committed to good care for patients, and this is a tool, a way, a path that helps them deliver on that. They're excited when they see the possibilities of what they're able to do with CI. And to me, that's what sells it. It doesn't have anything to do with somebody telling them to do it or somebody you know, tell, sneaking it in or doing it in any special way. It's really that internal drive to make things better that you know, a lot of, a lot of physicians, all physicians kind of naturally have. And then pulling CI in in a way that makes it easy for them to use it and, and actually see the results from it. You know, I've um, talked with lots of people from lots of different organizations and, you know, they feel like process improvement was used on things that they didn't think were what matters most or that it was done in a way that they didn't feel was respectful of their time or that they didn't necessarily feel or experience the impact of it, right? Did it make any difference? Um, and so these are the kinds of things that, um, you know, we of course try to avoid, but I think when you stay very focused on that, better for patients, better for caregivers, it, these things kind of fall away and, and people engage. But before I let Dr. Mason, I'm gonna ask the first question. And this is a theme that has come up in, in several of our recent podcast episodes is, how do you know what things to work on? So there are thousands of, of processes that are broken in healthcare. We can't do them all at once. Sometimes it seems like we try to do them all at once. Do you have a gr good intake process or way to prioritize um, which things you're going to work on just to make sure that you can successfully complete these? Yeah, it's a good question. So I, I'd like to separate it into maybe two different paths. One is what does my team work on specifically? Um, and really what we largely work on is engaging caregivers and then those caregivers, those leaders figure out what to work on. So I'm pretty agnostic as to the topic. Like you wanna work on CLABSIs, you wanna work on CAUDIs, you wanna work on sepsis mortality, you know, like you're the leader, what are the most important problems to solve? So we have, we have 18 hospitals. I was at one this morning. Uh, and that hospital has a, a physician president, has a nurse, a chief nursing officer, a chief operating officer, and a whole, you know, a leadership team. Their job is to help focus the organization, that hospital's efforts on, we say, what matters most. So, um, you know, my job is to support them and support them in achieving their goals. When we first started working on culture of improvement, we did not, I would say as an organization, have a strong organizational alignment system. And what I mean by that is we did not have a strong system to enable everybody to focus on what matters most. So what we would do is go into work with the team and say, 
exactly that. What matters most? Because people would have this, all these different problems they want to solve and projects they want to do. We say, what matters most? Why do you fundamentally exist? We fundamentally exist because we you know, need to deliver medications to patients' homes. Okay, great. <laughs> That's what matters most. How are we doing? How do we know if we're doing it or not? What gets in the way? So once you focus on what matters most, we say, what gets in the way of that? And that's all the problems. And we start tackling and prioritizing and, and tackling problems one by one. We now have um, implemented uh, OKRs or uh, objectives and key results into the organization a couple of years ago. That has helped because at the enterprise level, we have very clear goals around how do we ensure we are the best place to receive care anywhere? And that's where our quality and safety and patient experience goals come in. And um, you know, how do we take good care of our organization? And that's where some of our financial stewardship um, targets and goals come in. And so we are continuing to develop that system, but for that group, for the, for the leadership team, what matters most has become more clear because of that system being in place where I'm aligning my objectives and the key results I'm trying to deliver against the organization. So that's helped us a lot. Um, I'm actually giving, so, so we work with leaders and then they decide really what do we work on? Uh, what are our priorities? Um, I actually have been doing some recent reflections on how we started, which was that we started with the willing, right? You know, I didn't start with the first leader, you know, somebody who was going to be hard. I worked with somebody who would work with me. And then we gradually worked with the next leader and the next leader. So the first was an executive director within the finance division. And then, you know, then we, you know, got the CFO excited about it. And then we were working across all of finance. And I brought a, a, the executive chief nursing officer to see it. And she said, Lisa, will you work with me to do this across nursing? We have 26,000 nurses. So I was like, I'd be thrilled wow. to do on this. Uh, so we started to work on nursing and working through all of the nursing areas and nursing leaders across all of our hospitals. Um, so it, early on, it was easy to say, well, I'm going to you know, work with whoever's willing to meet, work with me next. Um, one of my kind of recent reflections um, from, the, from the COVID crisis and some of the work we were pulled into there was we suddenly got pulled into solving problems that were what matters most for the organization but it wasn't with the willing, right? So we really had to like figure out and push ourselves how to work beyond the willing, right? Uh, I had it call, got called into one very specific project where the leader who I was supposed to be supporting wouldn't call me back for days. <laughs> and this is like a really important problem that the organization needed to solve. Uh, so, you know, finally I got a hold of him and, you know, and, and I uh, asked him, you know, tried to have like a connection conversation. And one of the things he said was, I don't trust you. And I was like, <laughs> it was kind of surprising to me. There, there are a lot of people at the Cleveland Clinic who trust me. Um, so I was kind of taken aback by that. I mean, I appreciated your candor, but I was, tell me more about that. And he went through kind of the history, why, why he felt I was there and this and that, you know, and, and I kind of, you know, I got to the point, I was like, I can't, I can't convince you to trust me. There's nothing I can say right now that's going to make you trust me. I think I can help you. I think I can help your team. I think I can help us get this done. Are you willing to try? Because I knew the only way I could get him to trust me is to work with me, right? <laughs> like I could only demonstrate that I could help his team, would be willing to help his team. And he agreed to let me do it. And now, you know, six months later, he's 
he has a model area and he's doing all of the things in the model and he's ecstatic and we, you know, we helped him set up this flu tent. We've seen thousands of characters, like now it's totally, but I wouldn't have gone there because he was not one of the willing. And with 67,000 caregivers, it was very easy for me to say, oh, I'll go to the next willing, I'll go to the next willing. But in retrospect, it's quite likely that I was missing the opportunity to really challenge myself and challenge the organization and tackle the most important problems that we had, right? It's possible that the hospital I was at today that started in 2014 was not as important strategically or from a you know patient care impact perspective as another hospital that started later that just didn't have a president who was willing at the time. So we're figuring it out. Dr. Yarian, I, I read your paper um, called uh, No More Projects. And <laughs> And the cool thing about it was, is, is actually before I even read the paper, I kind of had an idea of the way of the way the paper was going. And, and the Cleveland Clinic is just known known worldwide for uh, its quality healthcare. But it, it looks like in in 2006 is when you guys really decided to focus on um, on CI, and and you guys um, developed a, or created a, a central improvement team. But in 2012, you guys decided to take sort of a different direction, and, and maybe you found out, figured out that things weren't weren't going quite the way you wanted it. And I would like you to tell us a little bit about that experience during those six years and what happened, and, and what made you decide to 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 change your strategy. Yeah, it's a good question. So the team was started in 2006. You're you're right. Um, they were bringing in some tools, so some kind of standard uh, tools and some project work. Um, and for a while, you know, trying to figure out, find the willing, right? Figure out where you can get people to work with you, demonstrate results. Um, I got uh, connected with the team in 2009, um, you know, started, I mean, I was just eyes wide open, trying to learn and do as much as I could. And projects were great for a while because they do deliver results. They were delivering results, which is great, but they were not fundamentally changing the flavor of the tenor of the, of the, of the organization, right? Um, so I had an opportunity to visit uh, on a Gemba visit with, that um, used to be called the Healthcare Value Network. Now it's called Catalysis Skip. I know, that's how I know Skip. Um, do a Gemba visit in a hospital actually that uh, had was working to build a culture of improvement. And when I got there, I was very new to all this. I got there and they said, um, oh, we have a special guest today. We have John Shuck and everybody in the room like, <gasps> you know, and they turn around to look to see where he is. I didn't know who they were talking about. And it turns out he's like a huge, huge <laughs> prominent thought leader within lean, but I got paired up to be in his group. So I got to visit a hospital with this like master of lean thinking, who's the like incredibly insightful and asking these like penetrating questions, like what's the problem you're trying to solve? What's the problem they're really trying to solve? That's it, <laughs> you got the book. <laughs> I love that book. Um, and, and I think I started to see like kind of what could be and I could see the difference between where we were and where we could be. And then at the same time, um, Mark had, actually Mark had gone to Abu Dhabi. We had a, I had a new boss. Uh, we were uh, working together and he was really pushing us to say, um, great, you've done projects, but have you actually 
change the culture. When you look at organizations who do this well, when you look at Toyota, which is where John Shook worked for many years, you see that there's a culture of process improvement. Everybody's a problem solver. We haven't done that yet. Lisa, I want you to do that. And I was at this point of, you know, I was ecstatic, right? This was like, this is, I was totally in love with lean. This was the work I was born to do. This is how I was going to change the world. You know, you can't read enough, enough liver biopsies to change the world, even if you're really good at it. Um, so I was very excited about this. But on the other side, I had seen time after time after time, and I'm guessing Skip has too, organizations that um, aspire to that, try to do that, but then fail, right? Then they falter, a leader leaves, something changes. I don't know what happens, they lose interest, but they fail. So at the same time, I was really excited and you know, uh, revved up about this, this challenge opportunity, but I was also really um, terrified and I knew, I totally knew that if we had a bad run at it, it would be years before we would be able to go at it again because the organization has a memory, you know, oh yeah, we tried to do that before, right? There were people who tried to do that here before, blah, blah, blah. It's flavor of the week, flavor of the month. You know, in our organization, we'd have these like, you know, leadership forums where they'd bring in a speaker and give us all books. And this would be like the thing, you know, and then six months later, we'd have another speaker and they give us new books. And, you know, we had this sort of pattern. So I knew that we had like one shot to do it. And so I, uh, this is how I got to the uh, A3 that I think wrote about in the paper you mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, I talked with Mark Reich, who was also from Toyota, but was working at the Lean Enterprises Institute. And he said, Lisa, I think you need to do an A3 on that, which I think was critically important advice because it took it from something where I was just sort of jumping to solutions or trying to copy what somebody else did to my problem that I had to think about and understand what is the problem? What am I trying to do here? What is our current what helps it? What doesn't? And I think that early, really deliberate thinking started us on a very good path. And we knew we wanted to impact the culture. And we started to understand what we thought were the key causes, right? Um, and so, you know, you can start to go through the, the thinking in, you know, why, why aren't people solving problems every day? Well, they don't want to. Okay, that's not really the case in healthcare. I mean, it's just, it's just not. Um, is it that they don't have time to? Probably very much so. You know, our hospitals are really busy. The hospital I was at this morning is at 98% occupancy. So if they look at how many patients are getting surgery today and how many patients are in their ED waiting for beds, they're in negative beds. And it's Friday, right? We're supposed to empty out because we don't look at the hours until Monday. Um, people are busy. But I can't just give you all two hours every day and expect that, one, I can't do that. But two, to expect that you're going to be able to turn that into good problem solving that's going to change the way we deliver care. And then we got to the third. So we said, okay, capacity is a problem, but I can't countermeasure that. Um, and then we got to the third one, which is capability, that our people don't really have the capability to solve problems even have conversations about problems in a way that's safe and brings forth more good conversation about problems to understand root cause to do a Pareto analysis you know all these you know a3 thinking is a methodology that you need to you have to learn so we started to focus on capability and then I think because of my medical training you know how did you learn to be a surgeon how did you learn to be an internist you did it right <laughs> somebody taught you a few things and then they said go do it I'm gonna watch you and then you go teach the next person so we use that exact same thing. I felt that training was a failure mode for many organizations, right? We're going to train everyone. And um, 
So I didn't want to do that. I wanted I wanted to build capability and I wanted it to be through doing just like we learned to practice medicine and, and so many other things, that, you know, tire shoes, all that stuff. We didn't learn it from taking a class. Um, we learned about doing it and then having to do it every day. So we really took that capability and what we didn't anticipate was that I'm getting beyond your question, um, but I think you'll find this interesting if not stop me. Um, what we found was that when we when we had you learn through doing, not only did you learn and build the confidence that you could do it, but you actually got the results yourself. And so people were excited about it because then they saw what was possible and that drove them wanting to do it again, which is something I totally, that was total luck. I had no idea that that was going to be the case. And I remember very clearly we did this. The first model area was in finance and the we would go, um, the executive director and I would go there every Friday afternoon. It was on another campus from where I normally worked. Um, we were down there every Friday afternoon and check in and how are things going? And they had to tell us what they had learned and what they had done. And at the beginning, it was like totally painful and like chins quivering and they hated it. And I thought it was so hard and, you know, but we, you know, very deliberately um, talk about purpose. So I'd be like selling, like we're trying to figure out how to build a culture of improvement. And if we can build it in this team, then we can build it in other teams. And if we can build it across the Cleveland Clinic, we can change healthcare because people pay attention to what the Cleveland Clinic does. And I'm sure that, you know, there are 44 people in the room and 43 people thought, you know, nice lady pipe dream and the other one wasn't paying attention. But Eventually, uh, we came to one Friday afternoon when we came down and they were like excited. They were like ecstatic. And what had happened was they had started to use visual management to track one of the problems they were trying to stop and they saw improvement. And they like were so excited they forgot that there was a doctor in the room. <laughs> you know, they forgot that they were standing in front of these boards, talking in front of their peers, all the stuff that they were hating for the you know last five weeks um, had all gone away. And that really became... Uh, really important learning for us that to get people doing as quickly as possible gets them delivering results, which is not only good for the organization, it's really good for that, you know, to fuel that cycle and energy around improvement. And that's, you know, really held uh, uh, incredibly well as we've worked with, you know, the next 20,000 caregivers. That's the first time I've ever heard of anybody making an A3 for cultural change. You know, you hear about all other problems, other types of problems, I mean, A3s. But the, the really cool thing is, is, I mean, I liked your A3. It's all crooked and lopsided. <laughs> and, 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 you know, people think if they make an A3, it has to be perfect. And if they, you know, uh -uh, this do it is, in Excel. I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that was real cool. And, and, and I really I really like the, uh, the statement that you made where you said we needed to engage all 52,000 caregivers in improving care for our patients. We needed to create a culture of improvement, a culture in which every caregiver is capable, empowered, and expected to make improvements every day. And I really like that expected. How, how, how did you bring that about, you know, specifically where, you know, the, the environmental service uh, worker, the, the people who's bringing the trays into the patient's room, how did you, how did you engage them to, hey, it's, I'm expected to improve every day. Uh, what, what can I be doing? Yeah, um, 
So typically we start or when we, you know, we start with kind of capable and empowered and expected comes later. Um, and what I found is that, and particularly with the groups that you talk about, once they are capable and empowered, expected kind of becomes irrelevant. Um, you know, we've worked with a, a, you know, too many teams who haven't felt empowered, some of them ever in their lives, right? Um, you, you know, you hear people tell stories about, you know, how their, how their, you know, their posture changes, you know, when they're, you go to see them. Um, but we start with keep, you know, we start with capable and, and, and empowered. And then as people start to improve, then they, you know, start to see, feel the results, feel the energy, and they want to do it again, and they want to do it again, and they want to do it again. Um, you know, I think expected comes in multiple ways for, you know, multiple different caregiver groups. I mean, in one way, you know, and, and pe some people come up with these like, oh, you have to submit a Kaizen card. We use a Kaizen board for our problem solving system. Oh, you have to submit a Kaizen card um, or you have to do this or you have to do that and try to come up with these, um, you know, measures of activity. I'm not in love with those because I feel like it's sort of activity, right? Like if you don't have a problem to solve, filling out a Kaizen card feels like waste, right? Um, you know, I can tell you to go look for waste sure. or something, but to fill out a card feels, sure. it feels sure. contrived. Um, I think it comes much more through those very clear goals and how are we delivering on those. So you're expected, you know, so now we have these OKR systems. Or So the teams I visited this morning, every team had a board up, a whiteboard up with their objectives and key results. So the objective would be, you know, provide safest patient care and their key result would be reduce patient falls from X to Y. And the expectation is that we are, you know, improving, right? And then that we are using CI to improve. So if you have a, a, an OKR or goal that you're not hitting, okay, what are you doing to hit it? And what they're doing to hit it is we have an A3 on that, uh, we're using process confirmation or Kamishibai. It's like a way that we check to ensure that we're following a standard process. Um, or we have visual management. It's in our tier daily huddles. So, so the expectation is more that we are using these methods to drive improvement. And the expectation to improve is really coming through the that OKR setting process where we're looking at every team you know, what matters most to this team? What do we need to deliver? And that's all really managed and done by the leadership teams. And, you know, they go and check in on the teams and their OKRs and how are they doing? And it was kind of fun. I was with a, a nursing director uh, at this hospital and she was telling me, we went to two or three of her, you know, areas. And she was like, you know, I really like this visual management board in this area because they have this green arrow that makes it really easy for me to see if we went up or if we, you know, because some things need to go up and some need to go down. And if it's green or red, and I can't always tell, and there's a lot of data there. So it's much easier. But just the fact that, you know, and, and like I've known her for years, like I can remember like a time when there's no way we would have been walking through the hallway having this conversation. But now she's critically thinking about the best way to, you know, help her teams forward their visual management systems so they can be even more effective. And then this other nurse, the nurse manager, in one of our intensive care units in, the, in this uh, hospital told me that um, they had uh, this days since board. So for Clabsies, Cotties, and I think it was Falls, they had days since and they had on there, you know, 121 days since one of them and however many days since the other. And she said, you know, we liked the board, but the problem was when we asked the team members how many we had actually had this year, they had no idea. 
So if you said four days since the last patient fall, well, how many we had this year? Is it one? Is it 10? She's like, so the team didn't really know how we were doing. And so we, you know, so, so we asked them, you know, how could we, how could we countermeasure that? And they came up with this board that cost $900. She's like, that did not meet our financial stewardship. So she, she showed me these they're like printouts, you know, that are in those little um, sheet computers where they had Clipsy's Claudius Falls, but it had just a quick visual for how many we'd actually had. But I was so excited about a nurse manager who cares so much about her team really knowing how we are actually doing, you know, like day sense isn't really good enough, you know, day sense could be four. That's not really giving them a sense of how we're doing. Um, and another nurse manager in another area, they were working on um I think they also have patient falls and they had this visual of a mountain and every day without a fall they had a person this, this their nurse manager cut out was like moving up the mountain but like you know like i felt like they were critically thinking about how do they make keep their people you know engaged in this and empower you know part of being empowered is knowing where you know how you're doing where your opportunities are so you mentioned earlier about the COVID 19 pandemic and how you had to be deployed for maybe some specific organizational goals you know, we found that some of the processes that we had kind of running really well before the pandemic have backslid a little bit, you know, some things maybe related to caudies, clabsies, and things of that nature. And one of the items we identified for maybe why is that our workforce is just so fatigued now. Um, and maybe the energy that they had prior to the pandemic for doing these improvement projects is not there anymore. Have you all noticed the same thing? And if so, you know, how can you really uh, address that and get them back to that to that same energy level? Um, yeah, it's hard. Uh, yes, we've seen the same thing. Um, and for our quality goals, we've done a lot of analyses because some of them have gone the wrong way because of COVID, right? It's literally the infection makes you more inclined to, you know, whatever. Um, but some of it is fatigue, caregiver fatigue. Uh, you know, taking care of our caregivers is is huge, and I worried a lot because early on people were like, "Oh yeah, front, you know, frontline workers, essential workers, support it." But then, like, you know, that energy starts to drain. Really, as our caregivers' energy was starting to drain, so uh, I, I worried a little bit about that. And then we had we had tremendous support for our caregivers who had COVID infections, but less obvious or prominent support for the rest, you know, everybody else who is still who is still working. Um, I think that, you know, so we have seen that problem. And actually, that was one of the things we talked about this morning. You know, some of the leadership's messaging, I think, really, really matters. Um, you know, like what matters most and then, you know, refocusing. So how do we get back to our standards? How do we get back to our standard work? So for this hospital, the leadership team is, you know, still going out on gamble walks, still talking to the team, still asking what gets in the way, still asking them how they're doing. So I think that does a lot to help keep the team and keep their energy. And I think also, you know, sort of shifting, you know, responsibilities and time and, you know, having this, sort of deliberate approach so you know i was asking one manager this morning how do you do you know how do you create time and then the the manager said you know well every day you know we know that we're going to have this huddle or we want somebody to do this um i also think kind of skinning it down to say like okay what matters most so if we're slipping in these three areas um, you know, which one is the one that we really want to, we really want to be engaged in, but the teams have gotten very creative. So whereas before we would have huddled in one room, okay, where can we take this? And some have said the move to virtual has really helped them. 
One question I'd love to ask you is, um, well, let me ask two questions if that's okay. Real sure. one quick question is, out of cur- I'm more more curious than anything because of how big Cleveland Clinic is. How big is your continuous improvement group? We have about fifty people. About fifty. So oh, the, yeah. the other question I would interested in because I'm sure you've reflected on this much. I know I do. Is when I think about the Baptist management system and it's, uh, you know, it's been around for about five or six years. And as it continues to evolve, you know, people ask me about different parts of it, but I think about it as every single facility, all 22 facilities, all of our 180 clinics, our college. When I think about that, I think that everyone's at a different evolution. And um, so, but even though I do think about that, ultimately I boil that up and I think about where is it we need to go next year? You know, if I had a magic wand and I could get us from this place to a year from now, where would that place be? Where, where you know, what areas do we need to get stronger in? I also think often about, um, maybe just because I'm a nerd, but I think about entropy, that second law of thermodynamics <laughs> that says that everything is in a process of degrading, or as I've been saying it less, lately, your sandcastle wants to melt. It's melting away. When you think about Cleveland Clinic and the amazing work y'all have done with improvement, if you had that magic wand and you said this one area would be where we would take the next step for significant improvement, where might that be at? So I, you, for me, what I think our next step is, it's the enterprise-wide improvements. And that's some of the work I've personally been involved in lately. So I've seen fantastic work at the team level or at the unit level or even at the hospital level. But there's, it, it's really hard to standardize some of our processes enterprise-wide. And I think, you know, when I think, you know, I think about beyond the willing, it's really about pushing ourselves into areas that are much, much harder. Um, I was speaking specifically about leaders, but I think these big, hairy problems, um, you think about like, okay, so which problems do you have teams working E3s across multiple locations? How can we take that up a level and say, let's solve this problem for the enterprise? Or um, if you look, and I think a person who's done this well is, um, Steve Muthing at Cincinnati Children's, how do we solve this problem across healthcare? Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's where we need to go. I think that's our next opportunity, right? We've built this foundation of capability. We've built this openness to these methods. We've built, you know, energy around it. Okay, now how do we leverage it? And I think the way we leverage it is with enterprise-wide improvements and industry-wide improvements. I think that's perfectly well said. And I just want to end this uh, podcast with saying thank you so incredibly. Uh, I'm so grateful for you, your leadership. You're you're a real leader in the nation at at showing us uh, how to drive continuous improvement in a culture of continuous improvement based on principles and behaviors. And I'm just so incredibly thankful for you. Thank you for teaching me. And thank you for coming on this podcast. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. It's been great fun and it's great to spend a little a little time with you. Thank really you. It. Thank you.